This episode of the Lawyers Hip Hop Happy Hour is sponsored by the law offices of Alfred Guillaume III, a boutique criminal defense firm located in Washington, D.C. The firm specializes in defending federal criminal cases. You can learn more about the firm by visiting our website at guillaumelaw.com. That's G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E law.com. Welcome to part one of my interview with Harvard Law-trained attorney Jeremy Duru. Jeremy is a professor of law at American University. He serves as of counsel to a prestigious D.C. law firm, and most notably, he's one of the nation's foremost authorities on sports and the law. He's written and lectured extensively on the hiring practices of the NFL, including the lack of diversity amongst head coaches. He's a published author, having written such books as Advancing the Ball, and the business of sports agents, which he co-authored with several other prominent figures in the sports world. And if that wasn't impressive enough, he also has a connection to one of my favorite film directors of all time, Mr. Spike Lee. We covered lots of topics in this interview, and I cannot wait for you all to listen. If you want to see what we look like, please subscribe to my YouTube channel at the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour. And also, please continue to follow this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour. I'm so honored to be joined by attorney at law, professor at law, and sports enthusiast <laughs> at law, Professor N. Jeremy Duru. How are you doing, sir? Uh, Alfred, I'm great, man. Appreciate being here. We really appreciate you coming on. You're a hard man to get a hold of. You're traveling the world and such, so. Yeah, I apologize for that, man. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this for a long time, so I'm glad that we're together. I, I, I'm really appreciative of you coming on, and I'm anxious to get into a lot of different topics with you. Um, and we've been talking a lot off camera about a variety of subjects. And I right. told you just a moment ago, just before we start, before we went live, that I have a Brown University story. Yeah. For those of us that don't maybe know who you are, um, you are a proud graduate of Brown University, yep. undergrad, and you are a graduate, proud graduate of Harvard Law School. Is that correct? That's right. Those are two Ivy League institutions, which is just Wow, I'm blown away already. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. I'm not sure it merits that reaction, man. But but I did have a good experience at both schools, I will say, yeah. How did you end up at Brown, first of all? So, actually, my older brother went to Brown. Okay, so it's a family affair. Yeah, well, it began with him. And um, there were two things about it that attracted me. One was that he was there. As much as I didn't want to admit it at right. the time, I was scared. How how much? What's the age difference between you two He's guys? He's three years older. Okay, so he was finishing up and you were just starting. Yeah, so he was a senior when I was a freshman. Okay. And being able to go someplace where my big brother was there right. was very meaningful to me. Even Absolutely. though, as I said, I didn't let him know. Or, you know. <laughs> um, so that was one part of it. Then the other part of it that's interesting is Brown has what they call the open curriculum which is a curriculum where that you outside of what you have to take for your major, there are no distribution requirements. So you don't have to take one okay. math, two Englishes, one science. Right. I definitely don't take math. That's not my yeah. strong and I, Exactly. And so I did not <laughs> That's why you went math. to law school, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so being able to have that kind of intellectual freedom was attractive. And so for those reasons, I went and had a good wow. time. You know, my parents both met at Brown University. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my mom came from Los Angeles, inner city Los Angeles. And she had, I, I imagine, looking back now in the mid-70s, it must have been a, just a totally different world. Single parent, home, came to uh, Brown University. My father had just come back from Vietnam on the GI Bill. He went to Brown. Oh, so wow. the, I always make the joke 
that they must have been the only two black folks that were there at the time, which is why they ended up getting together. There weren't very many there. That's for sure. What year was it, Alfred? It would have been in the 70s at some point. I mean, let's see, my dad graduated from high school in 1968. He then went to a Vanderbilt from Xavier University in Louisiana. He got drafted to go to Vietnam. He must have spent at least a year in Vietnam, I, I'm assuming. And then he came back to Brown. Well, he came to Brown, excuse me, in the, uh, I guess, early 70s. My mom would have been a, a little younger than him, so she would have come a little bit after. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I tell you, you know, in those days, there were not many black folks. I bet if I started talking to folks that I know, right. you know, who went to school in the late 70s, early 80s, they would know folks who knew your folk. Right, yeah. And my dad, um, we had the same name, so it would, it would be, uh, you know, you would start with that. Yeah. And uh, I, I did not go to Brown. I'm a proud graduate of Xavier University. All right. But, uh, you know, I always, uh, I didn't realize, my wife went to Cornell, uh, okay. which is another Ivy League school. So my my family, I'm the only dummy, I guess. That <laughs> <laughs> or the only person with understands. So I don't know. So my uh, my my young my children, when they go to school, I guess they're gonna go to somebody's Ivy League school. And <laughs> daddy, will, I have more of a complex at that point. What years were you at Harvard? So I I began at Harvard. I did a joint degree there. Okay, you have a, a master's, master's degree in from public there. policy and a law degree. So I was there 1996 through 1999. So you missed President Obama. He was not there at the time. Is that right? Yeah, he had passed through. Okay. Had passed through. Now, did, had you heard when you were there? I mean, you know, he wasn't obviously Barack Obama, future president at that time. But I'm, and I'm, this is a total assumption. I have no idea. I'm assuming that the black population of students at how at Harvard is not uh, astronomical. Is, it my, is that a correct assumption? You know, it's interesting. It's not astronomical. But when I was there. It graduated, I think, the third or fourth most black uh, law students of any school in the country. Wow. Behind wow. just a few others, yeah. So, so I mean, just period, just yeah. of any law, including HB, not HBCU. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a huge class. Okay, how big's your class? Oh, I can't remember. Was it over 1,000 people? No, not no. over 1,000 in the class, but it was... Um, was four like, or five hundred. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, that's I mean, about double uh, the size of uh, like what what my class yeah. was. But and, and so to answer your question, um, you know, obviously President Obama wasn't President Obama. He was Barack Obama. He is well known as being Black President of the Law Review. Right. First Black President of Law Review. Um, but you know, and for people who don't know what Law Review is, can you just kind of explain what the significance of that is and how like important that is? So law schools all have journals, uh, journals that publish legal articles. The students write some of the articles for the journals, but they also edit articles submitted by uh, prestigious lawyers and, uh, and law professors from other schools. Uh, and the most notable of the several journals at any law school is the school's law review. Right. It's masthead, it's called, the law review. And so to be on law review... In and of itself is an honor, right? Is an honor. And right. then to be the president... Is even a greater job. honor. I was not law review. I didn't get... I, I, I was not either. I did not qualify. <laughs> I also did not go to Harvard. <laughs> so he was the president of the most, arguably the most prestigious law review in the entire country. Yes. Um, wow. And that's an honor that you hold for a year at a time, two years at a time? How does it work? Uh, it tends to be one year. Okay. It tends to be one year uh, role. But, you know, you're remembered always as having held right, that. So right, it's kind right. of in perpetuity. That, that's, that's, of yeah, that's amazing. You are a, what I'm going to call uh, a sports lawyer, but I know that's a very simplistic term. And I know it's ba much deeper than that. So we're going to get into that. Sure. But you have uh, a great amount of expertise in sports law. 
and yes. sports, all things sports law related. How did that sports law focus start out? Did it start out in law school? Did it start after this by happenstance? Was it always your interest? I've always had interest in sport. I always had interest in sport, but it was totally happenstance how that came to be a part of my career. I was, I'd worked at a big law firm after law school uh, to pay off my, I mean, right, I, you're I was a lot broke. of money. Yeah. I was broke. Like most of us. I'm debt. still broke. That's what I'm trying <laughs> so, so I had to go to big, I didn't want to go to the big law firm, but I kind of right. had to. And so I was there for a few years, got great experience, but I was ready to move on. What city was that in? Do you, do you, can you say the law firm? Yeah, it was here in D.C. It was Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. Okay. It's now called Wilmer Hale. Um, a great law firm, without right. question. A, a world-famous law yes, firm. Yes. World-renowned, I should Extraordinary. say. Extraordinary. I really became, a, it really improved me as a lawyer, no question. But I didn't go to law school to work at a large law firm. I went to law school to be a civil rights lawyer. That's right. what I wanted to do. And so I left Wilmer, and I wanted to find a job as a civil rights lawyer. And I applied to a number of different firms and opportunities, and I got a offer from a small employment discrimination law firm called Marion Scallett, which is just a block down from here is where oh, our wow. office was. From our office where we are now Absolutely. in DuPont Circle DuPont in DC. Circle. So DuPont South is where we were. And Alfred, the first day I got there, the partner, main partner at the firm, Cyrus Murray, said, uh, I know we talked about some cases that I wanted you to work on when you got here, but we've got this matter that involves coaches in the NFL who feel like they're not having opportunities to be head coaches because of color and they'd like you to work on that. Wow. That was the moment. I was like, hold on. I, so I can focus on sport and civil rights wow, all and in law once. all in one? What an amazing it opportunity. Was, it was like a eureka moment. And, and, and from then, I've kind of seized that as my area of focus. And this was what year around when this uh, conversation happened? This would have been 2003. Okay. So now we're about 20 years removed yeah. from that. And the, that's a hot topic in sport now as well, yeah. opportunities for minority coaches. Mm -hmm. Have you continued to work in that particular arena? Yes. Wow. Very closely and carefully. I've written a book. You have uh, written three books, actually. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to plug you three books. I have them right here. Sports Law and Regulation. Yeah. Uh, the Business of Sports Agents. Yeah. And Advancing the Ball, which is... I think focus is specifically on that issue that we just talked exactly. about. Exactly. Advancing the ball is just about the movement for equal opportunity for coaches of color in the NFL. The, I noticed you say the NFL and not the NBA and not MLB. Uh, why the NFL? You know, I was a lawyer and the client was NFL coaches. And so that's where I got my, my start. Um, I think, you know, I think that the NFL has historically had some challenges with race. All of the professional sports leagues have right. uh, in this country. Uh, but the NFL was the last of the large sports leagues in this country in the modern era to have a head coach who was black. The NFL's got this really um, extraordinarily odd and unfortunate dynamic at the quarterback position, where traditionally it's been very hard for black folks to play quarterback. Right. Although it's changing. It's changing. Jalen Hurts got a huge contract. Yeah, he sure did. Philadelphia did. Eagles. He sure did. You got Mahomes and all these guys. Right. So it's, it's changing. But still, I'd say the quarterback population in the NFL is about 30% black. And the um, player population is over 60% black. I was so. going to say 70. Yeah, yeah, it's disproportionate. Before we go any further, you are a, are you a football fan? You know a lot about the law side. but are I you am a football fan. Okay. Uh, what, who's your team? <laughs> I, 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 you got to say. Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. You're a D.C. native, correct? Yeah, I'm a D.C. native. Um, 
I'm not a fan of the Washington Football Club. Okay. When I grew up, I wasn't. I'm from New Orleans. I'm a Saints fan. I'm not a fanatic, but I'm a fan. Um, I did not understand why half the people here, maybe more, were not fans of the local football team, and but were fans of their most hated rival. I was later. It was later explained to me by a fr good friend of mine who is actually a fan of the Washington team, who my mother told me a long time ago um, about the name being racist before, so I won't say the name, the old name. And she's not a sports person at all, right? This is, this is kind of ironic. Um, that the, the Washington football team um, were the last team in the NFL to integrate. Mm -hmm. And in the, at that time, in the city of Washington, District of Columbia, it was at least 70% African-American. So the football team, which had no black players in a city of predominantly black people, uh, it started to make more sense to me. Mm -hmm. Is that the reason? Is that the similar reason for you? That is the reason for so many. For me, sadly, um, my reason was more petty, which is my big brother liked the team. <laughs> the guy that I went to. Uh, right, the guy up, that you love so yeah, much and followed. Exactly. But would not admit it. And so he he loved the team, and so I had to go in the opposite way. That's that's so as a as a kid, I was a Cowboys fan. I lost interest in the Cowboys when I was in college. I I didn't love um, the team under Barry Switzer. There are a number of things about it I didn't, right. I didn't like. But I will say this: I'm with I was with your mother early. One thing I was, I think in high school, I was repulsed by the name. Right. Um, and I've been I've been I have been speaking out against that name for right. decades. It's so obviously racist. It's but so obvious. And 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 people were unwilling to either acknowledge it, cognitive dissonance, I don't know what. But it's so interesting that no matter what was done, there were lawsuits that were brought. I represented a client called the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which is the organization of coaches and executives and scouts of color in the NFL. We had a meeting with the club with the club owner. Wow. We had a meeting the with current the current or, or the, the, the soon to be, I don't, I don't the know. The soon to be former, former owner. owner. Okay. I mean, so we're pushing grassroots. There were lawsuits. Nothing would change it until the finance hit. The, the money speaks. The money spoke. Always. And so the name has changed. And so fortunately, we don't, you know, we've got the commanders now. And so right. we don't have to deal with I that. I think it's quite a silly name, actually. But I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have any vested interest. I'm a, a Saints fan. My little boy, I have a nine-year-old. He's a, for reasons that aren't clear to me, he became a massive Ravens fan. He loves. Oh them. well, they're close. It's Baltimore. Yeah, and so I, you know, I support the Ravens. I go to some games and enjoy them. They, uh, a buddy of mine from law school, um, is the president of the club, Sashi Brown. Okay, um, that's what happens when you go to Harvard, folks. You get lots of fancy uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> connections after you graduate. <laughs> so he's doing great things up there, man. We, you know, excited about that. Well, yeah, they have a um, uh, Lamar Jackson, the quarterback, just signed a big deal. Um, yep. With the Ravens, um, Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham is there. Who's a who's a New Orleans guy? He's uh, yeah, he's from New right. Orleans with the LSU. Yeah, right. We'll see what they do this year. I mean, I, I like sports myself, so yeah, you know, we can talk. We actually are going to talk sports, but I'm trying to trying to cater to all of our uh, our listeners. I know sure. they may not be as heavy in the sports, and maybe we're more interested in you as as uh, as a lawyer and representing these uh, these folks. So one of the questions that I had for you was your book, Business of Sports Agents. Are you an actual, uh, have you ever represented players in contract negotiations and things like that? I've not. Okay. I've not. So what's that book about? What is that? 
is it about the business, literally, the business of sports agents? Or? It's about the business of sports okay, agents. business yeah. side. It's a co-authorship with uh, Ken Shropshire and Tim Davis. Um, and the book, so, you know, there's a, uh, there's a chapter about unscrupulous agents. Uh, right. There's a chapter about agency in the international realm. Talks a lot about player transfers from uh, Japan and Korea to the United States and Major League Baseball, for example. Um, there's a chapter on the NCA's perspective toward agency. The book was written before this whole new world of name, image, and likeness. Right. How do you feel about name, name image, and likeness? Um, I feel as though there has got to be a mechanism for student-athletes to get a piece of the pie that they're creating, a um, piece of the revenue they're creating. Right. And NIL, I think, is probably the easiest way to do it, which is why it's come to pass through the state legislation. I think it's not going to be long, Alfred, before uh, student-athletes um, make a very strong push and likely succeed in the push to be viewed as employees. Um, and that'll, as you know, bring in the Fair Labor Standards right. Act. Well, I don't. Tell me. I actually don't know. Yeah, so that'll bring in the Fair Labor Standards Act that requires uh, minimum wage, that requires mm -hmm. that you get paid overtime for over 40 hours, all that stuff we're familiar with, unionization. Right. Under the National Labor Relations Act. So just for both people who may not be as familiar with yeah. sports, um, prior to the name, image, and likeness change in uh, college athletics, prior to that, um, athletes were not, were, it was prohibited by the NCAA, the, the governing body of college athletics, right, for them to receive payment for their services. Right. Um, and what I always thought was like, it really seemed, I mean, college sports is a billion-dollar business. You've yes. got to pay the TV the TV contracts, the, the the coaches make millions of dollars, the schools make millions of dollars, the athletes, and this is just anecdotal evidence from, I don't I don't have any, any particular, you know, statistic to tell you, but I just anecdotally, I can pretty much assume that most of these young men and women <clears throat> are not going to make it in a professional sport. Uh, they're going to do their uh, service for the university, and that's it. And there's no more, no no millions of dollars at the end of the at the end of the day. Everybody goes into it thinking that. Um, so now, if you want, if you are able to, you can now receive money from whomever, correct, to uh, for your name, image, and likeness as it relates to your school. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, pretty much. I don't know if I say whomever there are. State legislation has different guardrails, um, and the NCA has got guardrails uh, in the event there's no state legislation uh, in your state. But generally speaking, yes, you can get endorsements, you can get sponsorships, you can get a sponsorship from the local sub shop, you can get a sponsorship from a major um, apparel company or a drink company. Um, and you can make millions of dollars in and theory. You can make millions of and, 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 and in fact, there, right. there's some of these more than $10 million um, NIL deals for some of these student athletes. Wow. So you can make, you can make, now let's keep in mind, it's a tiny slice sure. of the college athletes who are able to command that kind of money. You know, most student athletes can't command any money in right. the free market, but some can and they do. You are a professor at American University. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Like, what are you teaching your students, and, and how do you like being a professor? How long have you been doing it? I love being a professor. I've been a professor since uh, 2005. Oh, wow. That's when I graduated law school. Okay. <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's a while ago. It's, it's a minute. Now, I will say that I've always, during that time, and still remain active um, in practice, right. um, 
do some consulting, do speaking. I feel like it's important for a law professor to be involved still in practicing law. Yeah. How are you still involved in practicing law? What are you What are you doing? So I'm of counsel, of, of counsel position with that same firm where I had that eureka moment 20 right. years ago, Marion Scallop. So I'm of counsel there. For those people who don't know what of counsel is, what does that mean? Well, actually, of counsel is a pretty broad term. Um, and this, and it, it references various relationships between lawyers and firms. In my case, it's a situation where I do some work with them at particular times, if there's an issue they think I can be helpful with, the issue that I'm interested in, but I'm not an employee of theirs. I'm an employee of the like an independent, uh, like a free free agent, I guess, for yeah, to use a sports yeah, essentially, term. Essentially, and I will say that it's always, you know, it's not a lot of my time. Um, sure. Uh, the great bulk of my time is focused on my teaching and my writing. Um, you have a lot speaking. of publications. Yeah. Too, too many to name. <laughs> it's uh, it's you know, it's. It's funny, you go through these periods of writer's block, and then you go through these periods where you, you don't have enough time, hours in the day to write what you want to write. Right. And what are you writing about primarily? So mostly about sport and society. So issues of sport and gender, sport and race, usually around discrimination. Uh, the book Advancing the Ball we talked about is kind of illustrative. So these are things that, are passionate, that you're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think the state of those things is currently in the major sports? I guess NFL, NBA, or, or whatever MLB, you, you know, you tell me, what do you think? That is a very broad question. But just generally speaking, what do you think? Uh, well, it's a good question. And it's interesting because, you know, just five years ago, you know, a bunch of us who do this work um, were kind of out there shouting in the wilderness. You know, people right. weren't really thinking about the connection between sport and society and sport and race and sport and uh, <clears throat> systemic subjugation. And, um, and then, of course, we had 2020 where George Floyd was murdered. Right. And the world turned upside people. down. Yeah. world turned upside down. And a part of that world turning upside down were athletes in this country, across the world right. also, but in this country, refusing to play games, right? demanding that they be able to protest publicly. And there were many people um, of all races who said, these guys are spoiled billionaires. They need to just shut up and play. Yeah. What would you say to those people? I think it's a... Uninformed. I'll put. I'll say it's an uninformed perspective. I would agree. I'll put it that way. First of all, it's critical that folks understand that not all of these professional athletes are billionaires or millionaires. And even if they were, so what? And even if they were, so what? But on the first point, on the premise, some of the most active uh, protesters during this period were WNBA players, and right. they are generally neither billionaires nor millionaires. Right. Okay, but even if they were, so what? Exactly. Why should they have less of an opportunity to express themselves on issues of the day than others? If the former president, who's uh, allegedly a billionaire, can express his opinion, then why not anybody else? Absolutely. This and is a free country. Absolutely. And so we had those protests over the course of that summer, and they've continued to some extent. But I think that woke the world up to this intersection right. of sport and society. So this area where we were working in years ago, nobody was paying attention to. Now people are paying attention to it. It's interesting. It is interesting, especially because people tend to watch sports to escape from whatever reality mm -hmm. that uh, they're living in. Even if it's for a few hours or a few minutes, they're living uh, through the through the you know, these athletes, their deeds, their accomplishments, their failures and adopting them sometimes as their own. But things that are never discussed, that it's like taboo. It was taboo. You don't talk, even though everybody's African-American in these sports, you never talk about race. Yeah. You never should mention your own race. 
you should just be happy that you're getting this massive paycheck in a lot of people's mind and just provide, just entertain me, basically. And it's, um, I'm glad it's changing. I, yeah. I really am. I'm, I'm personally glad it's changing. Yeah, me. No, me too. Absolutely. So I got off track, as I tend to sometimes. So no. <laughs> <laughs> I know I asked you about teaching, because that's very interesting to me. Because I've, my, both my parents are, are former professors. They're both retired. Um, and I grew up in and around universities my whole life. So being a law professor, to me, is like... It's a higher calling. It's it's awesome. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm envious that that you get to do it. You get to interact with students and shape the minds of the next generation of lawyers. Now you're you're not only a professor, you're a law professor. So um, even though you're not at Howard University, I have to go ahead and say that. I mean, I had obligatory. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> you know, full disclosure. You have family members that have graduated from Howard University School of That's Law. That's right. I sure uh, do. I sure do. And I and guess one of, my, one of my law school classmates is the outgoing dean, Danielle Holly. Oh, okay. Of Howard Law. Yes, uh, she's so going to be the the new president at Mount Holyoke, Mount Holyoke College. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you want law students? that are going out into the world or still in school or thinking about being a lawyer, what do you want them, what advice would you give them? I mean, there are many things. Right, I'm sure. You know, um, and I teach the law of professional sports, the law of amateur sports, and I teach civil procedure, which, as right. you know... That civil procedure, you know, the, right, yeah. The rules of how to it's bring not my favorite court, subject. How to defend it. Yeah, well, you didn't take it under me now. <laughs> right, okay, maybe I should school. have. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, it's a bit of a tough and dry area. But there, there are two core things that I like to leave my students with. One... Um, three. One um, is that the law is a tool. Absolutely. And to have been trained as a lawyer and then to be barred, that is to say to have qualified to practice law, yes. is a privilege and you've got this tool. And so I think it's, you know, you need to be responsible in the way you Absolutely. Because it can be taken away from you. It can be taken away from you. Absolutely. Right. Um, I've seen it happen to people that I went to school with. Really? That, yes, unfortunately. That's very, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. That's very unfortunate. Um, and then uh, the second thing um, is to recognize that the law is not written on some tablet that's in some museum, that it is dynamic, that right. it changes, that arguments change it, that you as students can change it. Right. You know, be an activist lawyer. You have to be. You have to be. Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah, this you is know? not 1776. That's right. There may have been some ideas that were good then, but most of them weren't. Most of them were not. Most of them were not. <laughs> and they're not relevant in, in, exactly in these modern right. times. That's right. So you got to be able to, you have to anticipate the law changing and be able to roll with it and make arguments to push it. That's two. And then three, and this one, and we can talk about Alfred, I want you to be happy. Absolutely. There are a lot of unhappy lawyers. Lots of unhappy world. lawyers. I know. I can attest to that. Yeah, Not I personally, know. but I can. And it's a stressful profession. I yes. mean, you know, everything is, you know, you seem to have a great life. You have a, a loving family and you're traveling all over the world yeah, and you meet famous very people. Blessed. But I'm sure there are days when you are like, boy, man, this is just Absolutely. too much. Absolutely. And it's. And and so and that's doing something that I love. Exactly. And so I tell my students, look, don't just do what you think is the in thing to do now, the or, you know, the area of law that will necessarily make you the most money. Right. Somebody do something that substantively you enjoy because it's going to be stressful. You're going to have deadlines. They're gonna to be tough days. And if you're dealing with stuff that you don't care about, yeah, you don't even like it. Or or is repugnant to you. Right. Then it's going to be a problem. So those are the things that I like to leave. I think that's a, that's amazing advice. And, you know, we'd love to talk about our successes, but we never talk about our failures yeah. and, and the stress that's involved. And, and the real world things, you have 
you know, you, if you want to be a lawyer and a family man or or whatever it is you want to do, you it, it takes a lot of dedication and time and you got to figure stuff out and you don't necessarily, you're not going to always get it right. That's right. Matter of fact, you will fail a lot. You fail a lot, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, it's just about getting back up, I suppose. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah. It's getting back up. The ground is no place for a champion. You know, you got to just. Get I like back that. Up. Yeah, I might steal that, actually. Yeah, you hear it on a future podcast. <laughs> I, took it from, I took it from a documentary I saw once. I can't remember who said it. Right. But it's true. Yeah. You know, because we're going to get knocked down. All the time. I mean, I've been knocked on a couple of times this week, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Some tough cases, but you know, hey, I'm, I'm uh, you know, it is what it is. This, right. is. this is why we do what we do. But before I let you go, I would like to ask you a question that we didn't talk about this off camera, and I, you, this may be totally coming out of left field. Okay. But um, were you in the movie Crooklyn? <laughs> that is out of left field, Alfred. That is. Or, I, is it, or was the internet wrong? <laughs> no, man, the internet's right on that one. The internet's right on that. I was, yeah. Were you a kid in the movie? Who? No, no, no. I was a dope fiend in the movie. <laughs> you were a dope fiend in the movie. I was a dope fiend. I got to go back. Because I've yeah. seen Crooked has been a while. I mean, so we didn't talk about this, but Spike Lee is, had, a huge, had and has a huge impact on me as a person. The art that he has produced. Um, the, I think the first Spike Lee movie I saw was School Days, mm -hmm. and that literally changed my life. Mm -hmm. That movie, not just my kids are very young, but I've watched the parts that I could watch with them just to show them of that movie and to and to normalize um, those faces and those uh, that culture, which I actively do anyway to both of them. And uh, how did you get in the movie Crooklyn as a dope fiend? Oh, man. <laughs> and how old were you? Not that much older than me. No, <laughs> man. I was, um, so first of all, your assessment of Spike, I mean, he's, I mean, trend center, a genius in his art, and he's extraordinary. Um, and was very kind to me. So I. He's a Knicks fan. We forgive him for that. He's but. a Knicks fan and a big one. <laughs> Huge one. Um, you can't see him wearing any, you know, he's going to be wearing orange and blue anywhere he goes. Yes. Um, he, I played actually, we, the two of us, if you recall the film, you remember the kids in the film? Right. right. Kids, right? And it was, it was semi autobiographical. So it was about his childhood and his family. And he and I played these two dope fiends on the block that harassed the kids. I got to go back and look at so this played, because I clearly played, I didn't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a, but our role was small, Alfred. The right. two of us had small roles, but it was- Well, he uh, made the movie, so he could make it. Yeah, <laughs> right? he could do that. He put himself in wherever he wants, and I was fortunate enough that he put me in next to him, and so not only was I in the film, but I acted opposite. All my scenes were with him, and I got how, to talk to him How did you even camera. get to that point, though? I mean, I'm curious to know, how did you- So it was- um, Because that's my guy. I mean, I'm- he and this is like and Eddie Murphy, you know, just two totally different kind of kind of uh, art that they produce. Yeah. Growing up, and I think they're the goats of their respective professions. Mm -hmm. uh, Eddie and Spike. I don't know either one, but I mean, those. If I ever had a, uh, I'm not gonna say a man crush, but <laughs> it would be it would be on one of those two guys. I, I guess. What? I'll let Spike know. Right. Um, Please do. That the brother has really impacted my life. No, seriously. The brother has really, truly. Yeah. My favorite Spike Lee movie 
Mo Better Blues. But you were, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, no. Mo Better Blues is a fantastic movie. Right. The soundtrack is incredible. Oh, Terrence Blanchett's from New Orleans. Who yes. Branford yes. Marsalis is also. Uh, had something to do with that yes, as well. Yeah. And uh, Branford Marcellus played in School Days as w- one of the characters in School Days, one of the friends of uh, one of Larry- Lawrence Fishburne. Well, yeah, go back and check it. See, okay, I got you on the, on the Spike I'll Lee check stuff. That. I'll check that. Crooklyn had a lot of new faces. You know, in a lot right. of his films, he uses a lot of the actors that he's used previously. Right, Crooklyn right. A lot of new faces. Giancarlo Esposito, you know, yep, he's in he's a lot. In there and, um, Bill Nunn. Yep. Rest in peace. Yes. May rest in peace. Absolutely. So in this in this film, Alfred Woodard was a lead. Delroy Lindo. Neither of them had been in Spike films before. I don't think. Yeah. No. Had, no. They yeah. had because Delroy was in Malcolm X, but that was after right. Crooklyn. Uh, um, as uh, West End Archie. West Indian Archie. Yeah. 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 Right. So um, that's actually probably my favorite Spike Lee movie. Actually. Right. Malcolm and X. somehow that's set apart. From right. The yeah. It's just, it's a totally different yeah, conversation. It's a different thing. Right. But. Um, so he was so you know there was an open call and then so I went and I auditioned and got a call back auditioned again got another one auditioned again and then basically I got the job and it filmed during the summer after my sophomore year in college so it's the best I wow. enjoy my work but it is the best job I ever had oh man I can I can imagine I spent the whole probably filmed on maybe four or five days total all summer but I basically spent the whole summer in New York with my boys hanging right. out and having fun oh that's a I mean. I don't know if we could end the interview on a better note than that. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on. I truly appreciate your time. I'd like to be able to call you back, uh, hopefully. Absolutely. <laughs> you, of you know, um, because there's so many more topics that we can discuss. I know you have uh, a busy schedule, but again, thank you so much for your time. And I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope our listeners do, did as well. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Hey, I enjoyed it too, man. Appreciate you inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour. Please continue to follow the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel at the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour for additional content and videos. See you next time. I'll catch you on the B-side.